0: You also want to pray this week. Uh, Mike Vanderlinden, who has been on sabbatical and preaching at Timber Ridge, he is arriving in Kenya today. He left Friday, but he is just arriving there today. And uh, he'll be there for about 10 days uh, ministering in the town of Latane, Kenya. And so you may want to remember that this week and be praying for him you Would turn with me in your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 8. We'll be starting at verse 18. And uh, we're going to go through chapter 9, verse 11. I'm actually going to read it as we go through it, uh, interest of time today being Communion Sunday, but. Um, So let's begin with a word of prayer, and we'll get into it. Heavenly Father, this is your word, and as always, we need it. We need to know everything we need for faith and practice comes from the mouth of the Lord. And We need to know uh, that when life gets difficult, when we can't see past the pain, that you are still with us, that you will never leave us. Thank you that Jeremiah teaches us that. Thank you that... This book builds our faith, that this book gives us hope. Uh, thank you that it is built on the word of the Lord. So help us to hear it, believe it, and obey it. And so we pray, speak through your word to us this morning, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. Amen. Uh, man wrote an article called, The Science of How Your Heart Can Break. And uh, the writer was Bill Gifford, and he portrayed the life of a man who believed that his heart attack was caused primarily by grief. And acclaimed mountaineer Conrad Anker, and uh, one of the most famous uh, mountaineers in the world. Uh, and him and his team uh, went to Tibet, and they trekked up uh, the Shisha Pangma Mountain. 26,335 feet for a very specific mission to retrieve the frozen body of his best friend whose name was Alex Lowe. Alex Lowe died in an avalanche on that mountain range and he had been on the trip with Conrad Anker when the avalanche came and the first half of their team was just swept off the mountain. And they were able to recover most of them, but not Alex. So they had a second trip to go back and recover the body of Alex Lowe. And once they found him, Conrad Anker picked him up and carried him down the mountain. Now, this isn't like a mountain like, you know, we have a half hour west of us. 26,000 feet. And he said it was a wrenching burden that weighed on his soul. And he later said, going back up there and seeing everything was super emotional. I was so stressed and I felt my heart. And he actually had a heart attack when he got down to the bottom of the mountain carrying the body of his best friend. That phrase, I felt my heart, who hasn't at some point in your life? Sometimes it's just the stress of doing something new or maybe something scary. First date, taking a need to propose. For many of you, approaching the podium to speak publicly. Publicly or most commonly when we hear of a loved one's death. Our hearts talk to us, and we talk back. And that's why before we even understand how it pumps blood, the heart has been a powerful symbol of love, emotion, conviction. People say, I believe in my heart. Uh, Truth, say the heart of the matter. Emotions directly affect our heart health. That may be why uh, more people seem to have heart attacks on Mondays than any other day of the week. And cold Mondays are even more dangerous. Some people have experienced sudden acute trauma, such as the death of someone close, can suffer an actual physical change in their heart. When Conrad Anker said his friend's death touched his heart, it probably did. And he's not alone. And our passage today in Jeremiah is a great place to learn what does it mean to be heartsick, And what is God doing when he lets that into our lives? So let's find out. Turn with me to Jeremiah 8, starting at verse 18. We're going to jump around a little bit today. I'm not going to keep strictly to the order that's in your outline. Uh, but let's take a moment, look at these verses And stand in this fountain of grief. That's the first blank there in your outline. A fountain of grief. Jeremiah says, My joy is gone. Grief is upon me. My heart is sick within me. Behold the cry of the daughter of my people from the length and breadth of the land. Is the Lord not in Zion? Is her king not in her? Why have they promoted "'Provoked me to anger with their carved images "'and their foreign idols. "'The harvest is past, the summer is ended, "'and we are not saved. "'For the wound of the daughter of my people "'is my heart wounded. "'I mourn in dismay as taken hold on me. "'Is there no balm in Gilead? "'Is there no physician there? "'Why then has the health of the daughter of my people "'not been restored?' Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. Oh, that I had in the desert a traveler's lodging place, that I might leave my people and go away from them. Our passage today starts with the lament of Jeremiah. And he says, my joy is gone. Grief is upon me. My heart is sick within me. Have you ever been heartsick? Not just something happened that made you feel bad, but something hurt so much that you were unable to respond at all. Maybe you suffered through a time of great loss when you felt lost or lonely or abandoned. Most of us have experienced that, and if you haven't, you probably will. Perhaps it's the loss of a loved one, a change in job or location or school, or a fractured relationship, or even a friendship that just faded away over time. In those cases, there's some sort of loss that leaves you feeling empty and sad. And when that happens, we often find ourselves questioning the presence of God in our lives. We know he's there on an intellectual and theological level. We just don't feel like he's there. And we end up wondering, where's God in all of this? Why can't I sense his presence anymore? Why does it feel like he's left me? And those questions aren't uncommon. And the tears that accompany them are even more common. And Jeremiah would understand. He's been called the weeping prophet, and for good reason. In our text today, we seem to be confronted with a perpetual lament this endless flow of tears for the people of God and with his lament comes confusion there's lots of commentators trying to figure out this passage and most of them can't they're not quite sure who's saying what and what does it mean because jeremiah is a jumble of conflicting emotions and contradictory ideas Consider what he says about his relationship with God. He has the strongest possible sense of God's presence. He's spoken to God directly as a friend to a friend. But by the time he gets to the middle of the next few verses, it sounds like he's doubting whether God's really there at all. But is he? In his grief, Jeremiah is at once close to God and at the same time far away from them. He senses both the presence of God and the absence of God simultaneously. How does that happen? Why does great loss lead us to question the presence of God? After the death of his wife, C.S. Lewis wrote about the way sorrow confuses one's relationship with God. He wrote a book called The Grief Observed. And in it he said... Meanwhile, where is God? This is one of the most disquieting symptoms. When you are happy, so happy that you have no sense of needing him, so happy that you're tempted to feel his claims upon you as an interruption, if you remember yourself and turn to him with gratitude and praise, you will, or so it feels, be welcomed with open arms. But to go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain, what do you find? The door slammed in your face and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside and after that, silence. You may as well turn away. The longer you wait, the more emphatic the silence will become. There are no lights in the windows. It might be an empty house. Was it ever inhabited? It seemed so once and that seeming was as strong as this. What can this mean? Why is he so present a commander in our time of prosperity and so very absent a help in our time of trouble? And you sort of read that and question it, but it's C.S. Lewis. He's a smart guy. And Jeremiah's confusion about his own relationship to God is then mirrored with his relationship with God's people. He seems to have solidarity with them. In verse 21, he says, For the wound of the daughter of my people is my heart wounded. I mourn and dismay has taken hold of me. He identifies so strongly with the people of God that their sufferings are his sufferings. And yet, just a few verses later, it sounds like he abandons them altogether. In chapter 9, verse 2, he says, that I had in the desert a traveler's lodging place that I might leave my people and go away from them. Now it seems the prophet doesn't want to stay with the people of God at all. He wants to get his own private heartbreak hotel and a resort property in the desert far away from his people and all their problems. I understand that. So did Jeremiah love God's people or did he loathe them? Is God present Or is he absent? And it's all very confusing. But it is not surprising. The confusions and contradictions remind us that Jeremiah is writing from the very depths of despair. And despair troubles the soul and confuses the mind. And in his grief, Jeremiah is not sure what he thought or how he felt. Just like you and just like me. The reality is that our lives are not always filled with triumph and victory. Sometimes our lives are filled with suffering and pain. And lament in the Bible allows that. Lament legitimizes our suffering. Now, in modern American uh, church life, that's not a popular thing to say. I mean, we have the idea of triumphalism comes through in a lot of our churches. We're going to fix everybody's problems. We are going to address their painful issues with our great knowledge and wisdom. And our churches, especially in Northern Virginia, which is made up of overachievers to begin with, generally that's what brought them to Northern Virginia. We don't have any sense of balance of that Sort of triumphal success driven narrative with a dose of lament over what's going on and the suffering and pain that surrounds us. Lament is not only underrepresented, but books like Jeremiah show us that it's absolutely necessary. Lament reminds us that being heartsick is being human. The laments of, Je- of Jeremiah, and there are several of them, remind us it's not only okay to feel that pain, it's also okay to articulate that pain out loud, even in the midst of corporate worship. At its root, lament is truth-telling, and it forces us to listen to each other much more carefully. And our passage today in Jeremiah, is a great place to learn how to do that, but when we refuse to do that, when we don't like to talk or hear about pain and suffering that's so common in life, we end up learning something else. Something that makes our lives worse, more painful, more heartsick. And that kind of suffering is the result of refusal. The result of refusal, verses two through six. He writes, For they are all adulterers. A company of treacherous men, they bend their tongue like a bow. Falsehood and not truth has grown strong in the land, for they proceed from evil to evil, and they do not know me, declares the Lord. Let everyone beware of his neighbor, and put no trust in any brother, for every brother is a deceiver, and every neighbor goes about as a slanderer. Everyone deceives his neighbor, and no one speaks the truth. They have taught their tongue to speak lies. They weary themselves committing iniquity, heaping oppression upon oppression and deceit upon deceit. They refuse to know me, declares the Lord. So when you ask the question, what plunged Jeremiah into such confusion and despair, you have to realize there's good reasons for his sorrow. And the main one is the people of God are no longer people of the truth. Lying and deceit are mentioned repeatedly in these verses. Jeremiah's people are not being truthful in their relationships. They were, end of verse 2, all adulterers a company of treacherous men. Then again in verse 8, we see their tongue is a deadly arrow. It speaks deceitfully with his mouth. Each speaks peace to his neighbor, but in his heart he plans an ambush for him. And it's like that. All the time in Jeremiah's Jerusalem, people were polite, but they were not truthful, nor did they speak the truth to God. Their relationship with God isn't any better. Look at the end of verse 19. God says, why have they provoked me to anger with their carved images and with their foreign idols? They worship many false gods rather than the one true God. And not only does Jeremiah lament, it seems that God laments too. Verse 3. They bend their tongue like a bow. Falsehood and not truth is grown strong in the land, for they proceed from evil to evil, and they do not know me, declares the Lord. So he tells Jeremiah, verses 5 and 6, Everyone deceives his neighbor. No one speaks the truth. They have taught their tongue to speak lies. They weary themselves committing iniquity, heaping oppression upon oppression and deceit upon deceit. They refuse to know me, declares the Lord. Well, that's the biggest lie of all, saying that God doesn't exist, or even if they admit that he exists, that he's not worth knowing. It's such a contrast with the truth that we get in the Gospel of John. The Apostle John tells us in uh, John 17, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. The people of Jerusalem don't praise God for his majesty. They don't thank him for his mercy. They don't ask him for his forgiveness. Their silence is a denial, not only of God's worth, but ultimately a denial of his existence, which is the mother of all lies. But not only that, their family relationships are equally false. Husbands and wives are cheating on one another. Brothers and sisters are betraying one another. We see in verse 4, let everyone beware of his neighbor and put no trust in any brother. It's like God has placed a uh, uh, beware thy neighbor sign over Jeremiah's relationships. I mean, with friends like these, who needs enemies? And when the Lord says that every brother is a deceiver, he's literally saying that every brother is a Jacob. That play on words calls to mind the story of Jacob and Esau, in Genesis 27, where Jacob deceives his father and tricks his brother out of his blessing. And the point is the people of Jerusalem are treating their friends as falsely as they treat their families and vice versa. Tr- trust is the basis of any society. But in this city, every personal relationship, every spiritual relationship, every family relationship is corrupted by untruth. So Jeremiah describes the tongue as a weapon. Beginning of verse 3, they bend their tongue like a bow. Later, he says, they use it like an arrow. He said they've trained their tongues for combat. Verse 5, they've taught their tongue to speak lies. No wonder he's overcome with grief. When a society loses its love for truth, it falls into a lamentable condition. And so Jeremiah says, if I could... I will run away, you know, manage a a bed and breakfast out in the desert just to get away from all these lying people. But he's bound to the people of God by his divine calling, by his family, by God's love, and he couldn't leave them. He can only grieve for them. There's another reason that he grieves for them. He grieves because he knew that God would demand justice. That's sort of the end of our passage today that God would demand justice, starting at verse 7. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will refine them and test them, for what else can I do because of my people? Their tongue is a deadly arrow. It speaks deceitfully with his mouth. Each speaks peace to his neighbor, but in his heart he plans an ambush for him. Shall I not punish them for these things, declares the Lord? Shall I not avenge myself on a nation such as this? I will take weeping and wailing for the mountains and lamentation for the pastures of the wilderness because they are laid waste so that no one passes through and the lowing of cattle is not heard. Both the birds of the air and the beasts have fled and are gone. I'll make Jerusalem a heap of ruins, a lair of jackals, and I will make the cities of Judah a desolation without inhabitation. These are hard words. Jeremiah has been hard all along. But these are grieving words. Jeremiah is not saying this in a condemning tone. He says this with tears. He's in grief for what's going to happen. Because he knows that God has to judge them for these sins. That judgment is inevitable. Because they didn't speak the truth. They're going to have to pay the consequences. And God lays out his case For them, he says, Shall I not punish them for these things, declares the Lord? Shall I not avenge myself on a a nation such as this? And God said that before. Verse 9 appears exactly the same way back in chapter 5. Twice. And you can't really argue with God's logic. He has no choice. People are unfaithful to him. They're unfaithful to each other. What else do they deserve? Except to be punished. And the problem is not that God's absent from Zion, but that he's angry with Zion. So throughout this passage, we get glimpses of the kind of judgment that God's going to bring upon them. It's going to include exile. As a prophet, Jeremiah can see things that hadn't happened yet, as if they were happening right before his eyes. And he knows the people of Judah are going to be captured and carted off to Babylon. Babylon. It's going to mean death as well as exile. He mourns the people that'll be slain," he says in one, "Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people." It's going to include natural disaster. There's a bitter lament at the end for the land and its creatures. He says I'll take up weeping and wailing for the mountains, and a lamentation for the pastures of the wilderness. The mountains and the deserts are desolate. Jeremiah listens, and he can't hear the animals. They're all gone. It almost sounds like he's describing the day after a nuclear holocaust. Or maybe you should say the day of the jackal. As he says at the end of our passage, verse 11, I'll make Jerusalem a heap of ruins, a lair of jackals. Jackals are wild scavengers, and they prowl in the remote places and live off the leftovers and the scraps and carcasses and... A lair of jackals is an uninhabited place of cold darkness, death, and destruction fit only for beasts. So you go through all this grief just pouring out of Jeremiah, and it's really hard and it's really sad, and you wonder when our lives get filled with grief, when the people in our lives refuse to repent, when justice and judgment of God loom large among people we know, What do we do? And more importantly, what do we do when that's happening to us personally? I mean, it's one thing to watch others suffer, but what do you do when God makes your life hard? How does that idea even sit with you that God may make your life hard? It's a topic that seems off limits in many churches. It makes people uncomfortable because nobody wants to talk about it. I mean, we're ready to talk about uh, the Christian life is made difficult by the world, the flesh, and the devil, our sinful choices. We can blame our parents, our kids, or our enemies. And certainly there is some truth to all of those. And we readily attest to that. But God making life hard for the faithful. What are you doing, God intentionally, by design, makes life hard for his followers. And maybe you agree and you can see that God sometimes makes life hard. But maybe you can't get with this program. Maybe you're offended by that kind of suggestion. Maybe, you know, your hand's ready to shoot up so you can rush to God's defense. Because what will he do without you? You want to protect his reputation from the charge that he will cause his children to suffer. And you could argue that, you know, bad things are just part of living in a fallen world. And there's some truth to that too. However, there's something about pain and suffering that make us feel like there's an intentional rhythm to the whole thing. So there's still this question, does God make life hard for his people? Well, if we think back to the life of Abraham, in Genesis 12, God promised Abraham a son. And you can imagine... Abraham waits 20 years. Thanks for the promise, God. But it's been 20 years. What gives? And it led him to uh, act impulsively and have Ishmael with Hagar almost mess up the whole plan. But then Sarah conceives in her old age and a son is born, and it's shocking and it's miraculous. But why all that time spent waiting? Why all that tension and uncertainty? You know, it's one thing to tell you to trust God. It's another thing to say, well, you're going to have to trust God for the next 20 years. Couldn't God just have not told Abraham about it till they got a little closer? You know, maybe uh, there would be a lot less of this God-ordained angst, you know, if He just waited until just beforehand. And why even more? When some years later, God told Abraham to go against every instinct, every cultural and religious norm, to take that promised son, Isaac, and put him on an altar and sacrifice him. Now, God saved him from that, but God told him to do that. Yeah, sometimes God makes your life hard. He puts you in a hard place, makes you make hard decisions. And clearly, God's presence and involvement with Abraham produces challenges that Abraham never expected. Or we could go to Joseph, we'll go to the other end of Genesis. He's given dreams predicting his supremacy over his family. Are those God-given dreams? Or he's just, you know, got an overactive, narcissistic fantasy life? You know, you tell me. His brothers end up beating him up and selling him into slavery. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. There is a recovery of sorts. He becomes top dog in somebody else's household... And charge of everything, but then he's falsely accused and thrown into prison. But there he helps someone out, and his reputation shines. He asks them to remember him, only to be instantly and completely forgotten for two years. And so the psalmist says, Psalm 105, God sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. His feet were hurt with fetters. His neck was put in a collar of iron until what he said came to pass, the word of the Lord Tested him. Does God make life hard for his people? Well, yes, sometimes he does. There it is, it's out on the table. God makes life hard because he's being true to who he is and he's being true to who we are as Christians. Now, admittedly, there's a great deal that's mysterious about the suffering that God seems to lead us into. But for the time being, after us, he gives us some important handles. Things that we can grasp will keep us from sliding down the slippery slope of confusion and despair. These handles are given to us throughout the word of God and they're helpful especially when you find yourself in the midst of one of the storms of our life. And the handles are actually metaphors that describe God. Literary devices used to Flesh out that which is hard to communicate in other ways. And we find them throughout the Bible. And I'm just going to skim over a few of them real quickly to introduce you to us tools for how to grapple with this tough question. Does God make life hard for his people? And these are helpful because they give us needed perspective on how to live life as a Christian when hard things come. And the first metaphor is God is parent which makes us his adopted children. And the metaphor of Israel as God's firstborn is first introduced in Exodus. Thousands of years later, the apostle Paul tells Gentiles, think of ourselves as adopted children. When we're adopted into the family of God, we come into these breathtaking benefits, the presence of God, salvation, our debt for sin is paid, we get eternal life, and so on. But there's lessons as well. None of us instantly gets along in our new surroundings. There's no magic pill. All of us are in the painful process of learning how to get along with our new family, our fellow believers. God as parent, every child knows that brings a certain level of pain and suffering into their life. Second metaphor is God as teacher, which makes us students. At one point, Job, near the end of, of that book, exclaims, Behold, God is exalted in his power. Who is a teacher like him? Job experienced more pain and suffering than the vast majority of mankind. But sometimes it's feeling the pain of not knowing what you thought you knew. And that's a humbling experience. You can't remember something or you can't figure it out. And you know, I should know this. It moves from an intellectual problem to the pain of frustration. And that happens from time to time in human experience. Just think how much more it happens in our experience with an all-knowing heavenly father. We forget what God has taught us. It's the type of pain we can expect if we seek after God because we have a lot to learn. And then we have a strange verse in Hebrews 5. It says, During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was his son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. Jesus learned from his suffering. Why didn't then do we think that we can avoid it? There are growing pains as a member of the family. There are growing pains in our role as a student. We should expect these as we grow in Christ. The third metaphor is God as craftsman, which makes us the object being made. When anyone debate, the artist is in control of the thing being made. She conceives it, she chooses a medium, she plans it, she sketches it out, She makes it, paints it, molds it, or carves it. And this metaphor lets us in on the fact that God is the designer and the maker of our lives. And sometimes the pain we experience is realizing that we're not the makers of ourselves. And that flies in the face of everything our culture says that tells us to be self-made people, rugged individualists, Isaiah railed against the cultural mandates of his day that forced his people into trendy and misguided molds. He says, you turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay? That the thing made should say of its maker, he did not make me. Or the thing formed, say of him who formed it, he has no understanding. We do that. We don't mean to, we don't put it in those terms, But every time we tell God that he doesn't understand the pain that we're in. I mean, Paul reminds us again in Romans 9. But who are you, a man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to the molder, why have you made me thus? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for beauty and another for menial use? Another craft we find in the Bible is metalworking. And here metal, like silver, is refined to remove the dross and the impurities. It's a common metaphor in the scriptures. And it's a common metaphor for going through pain and suffering. In our text today, Jeremiah says in verse 7, Therefore says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will refine them and test them. For what else can I do because of my people? Paul is implicit about being refined, being worked as a beautiful piece of art in the hands of a master craftsman. He tells us that in Ephesians 2, and we often know Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 because it talks about being saved and getting grace and faith and these wonderful things. But then he says in verse 10, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he planned ahead of time for us to walk in. Just a few metaphors to help explain the God-ordained growing pains in our lives. And growing pains are necessary in order for these metaphors of parent, teacher, and craftsman to be true pictures of our relationship with God. They show us how God's being true to himself and teach us how to be true to ourselves. And without that kind of growing pain, we wouldn't see the truth. Instead of being adopted children, we'd be orphans. Instead of being students, we'd be ignorant. And instead of being beautiful creations, we'd be trash not fit for a yard sale. Instead of fine silver, we'd be junk metal. Can you see how suffering is a crucial part of the Christian life? Now, this isn't one that I got really excited about when I came and said, I can't wait to preach this. It's going to be all about pain and suffering. You know, it'll be awesome. Everybody's going to love it. But it is very much a part of life. We all deal with it. There are no exceptions. But Jeremiah is teaching us there isn't one single pain that we go through as Christians that's casual or capricious or malicious, and that's because there's a sovereign God still sitting on the throne of heaven. And while we often can't see past the pain, we see the result that comes from the sanctifying, making us holy power of suffering. And he brings that suffering into our lives for one primary purpose, to make us more like his son, Jesus, who is the suffering servant. See, in our passage today, Jeremiah is presented as a suffering servant. He identifies with his people even while they drive him to tears. But much of the language of suffering that we see in the book of Jeremiah corresponds with similar language we see in the book of Isaiah. They're both prophets. And in Isaiah, there's a classic passage on a suffering servant. We find it in Isaiah 53. It may sound familiar to you. It says, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him The iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. It is the classic passage of the suffering servant. And in the case of Jeremiah, the prophet is called to experience the same rejection as that greater suffering servant will experience centuries later as the sacrificial lamb of God. In fact, later on in Jeremiah, when we get to chapter 24, we're going to see uh, Jeremiah is falsely accused of crimes, that he'll face a bloodthirsty mob eager to condemn him to death, He will stand before our royal officials who see his innocence but will succumb to the will of the masses and imprison him. And the sequence of events will be reenacted almost exactly in the city of Jerusalem centuries later in the history of redemption. Only then it will be the Lord Jesus Christ himself who endures those trials in the final days of his earthly life. And because of that, We have, strange phrase, a bomb in Gilead, which Jeremiah didn't have, but he so desperately wants. It says, uh, chapter 8, verse 22, is there no bomb in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then has the health of the daughter of my people not been restored? He needs medicine. And Jeremiah goes to the pharmacy and discovers they're completely out of the bomb of Gilead. He asks if there's a doctor in the house and there's no answer. And without a doctor or medicine, the illness can't be cured. Now, Gilead is the land just east of the Jordan River. And it's known for healing balsams. Now, when Joseph was sold into slavery, he was sold to a caravan that was taking the bomb of Gilead to Egypt. The bomb of Gilead seems to be some sort of soothing, uh, aromatic resin made from a plant. It would probably be compared to something like aloe vera today. The balm of Gilead is useful in keeping wounds from getting infected. And Jeremiah can find no balm in Gilead. Not for these wounds. As he examines the vital signs of his people, he realized he can do nothing to bring them back to spiritual health. There's no medicine to cure them and no doctor to heal them. And the people of God are in need of salvation from sin, and Jeremiah didn't know where to find a Savior. And what the people of Judah needed was someone who could heal their diseases. They needed a great physician. What they needed, of course, was Christ. They needed the Christ who, like Jeremiah, wept over the sins of Jerusalem. We see that in Luke 19. But Jesus did more than weep for his people, he died for his people to heal them from the wounds of sin. Jesus Christ is the bomb in Gilead, he is the great physician who heals the wounds of God's people. And he is present with us, even and especially in our times of pain and suffering. Think about that. It's time to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you've spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. God, we confess to you that our attention often turns away when we're suffering. We seek after healing, after medicine, after anything that will help us feel better. Long before we seek after you. Give us a greater desire to know you. Forgive us for our lack of faith. Forgive us for being overwhelmed by our own pain. Forgive us for focusing on ourselves more than you. Work in each of us this year as we live with the prophet Jeremiah, as we see what he sees and as we hear what he hears. Teach us to respond with greater faith, a greater love for your word, and a greater trust in your work in our lives, no matter how hard. And through these things to draw us ever closer to your son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. Well, we got through it. Let's stand for the benediction. This is not one of our common benedictions, but I think it fits for today from the Apostle Peter. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Amen.